today. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother. In the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo, you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
a lot of them would have their signature move. And that was how they won their matches. The fans watched for it. The fans expected it. You know, if you were a heel, they didn't want the baby face to be put in that signature hold. And if you were the baby face and putting it on the, the heel, you know, the fans were standing up and cheering. Johnny Powers in the AWA was a heel. Bonafide heel. I mean, the, the fans here hated him. What was interesting about Johnny Powers, though, is when he came in in February, I think that Vern Gagne had some big, big plans for this guy because he went right to the top quickly. I mean, he wasn't a, wasn't a wrestler that came into the territory and had to work his way up through the preliminaries, you know, and eventually two, three months down the road be, you know, getting a semifinal or a main event. Johnny was in main events right away, wrestling against guys like Ernie Ladd, Reggie Parks. Uh, he was in the ring tag teaming with Johnny Valentine against Larry Pretty Boy Hennig and Handsome Harley Race. And he was in the ring with the mighty Igor and uh, just a who's who of who was the talent in the AWA at the time. He holds the distinction of being the only wrestler to ever come to the AWA to win a cage match against the Crusher. Wow. That's that's a that's phenomenal a feat right there. Because the Crusher, you know, he was, I mean, next to Vern Gagne, he was God in the AWA. Right. And any blow-off match with whatever heel that the Crusher went in his he in his hero days, his babyface days. When he wrestled a heel and they got to that blow-off match, and it was sometimes the cage, the fans knew Crusher was going to win, and he did. And in uh, 67, when Johnny was here, uh, Johnny beat him. And, and here's the deal. He wins the cage match. He even then got a couple of title matches with Vern Gagne, because Vern was AWA champ at that time. And he got a couple of title matches. And then something weird happened. And this is the story I'm going to share with you. And then I'm going to share the something that no one's ever heard before. Because I've not, I've not even talked about this. After his couple title shots with Vern and his cage match with Crusher, there was a guy named Dr. X that popped into the AWA in August of 67. And Dr. X in other territories was the destroyer. Yep. But we didn't know that back then. Kayfabe, baby, it ruled. <laughs> and uh, Dr. X came in as a mystery masked man. And the weird part was is that his finishing hold was the figure four leg lock. Now, I'll tell you how Dr. X debuted. He had come here, and this is to this is to really tell the story for Johnny's leaving. I think Doctor X came here three weeks. He was in the studio in the audience, mask on in a suit. Come out to the interview area, claiming he wanted a match with one of these wrestlers. Nobody knew who this guy with the X mask was sitting there. They would usher him back to his seat. On the fourth week of TV tapings. Vern Gagne was in the ring, champion. He's wrestling a match against veteran Jack Pesek. 
which was always a good match, by the way. Pesek was a great worker. Vern got the sleeper hold on Pesek, which meant that was going to be the ending. Well, out of the audience, up onto the ring apron, up onto the top turnbuckle, and down on the back, the neck of Vern Gagne comes this mass man. Gagne goes down, releases the sleeper hold, goes down, and this mass guy puts the figure four leg lock on him, and he won't release it. And finally, Vern, the champ, uncles, says, I give up. Dr. X comes out in his interview and he says, I've been asking for a match for three weeks. You've charted me off like a lunatic. He says, I just beat your world champion. I want a match. So that's how the doc made his great entry. And you've got a ready-made possible feud with even the champion. But now here's where Doc or where Johnny Powers fits into this. When Dr. X came in, Vern actually went to Johnny Powers and said, with the mass man here now, the Dr. X, I don't want you to use your power lock hold anymore. Well, you know, Johnny didn't like that. And that didn't make any sense. But in Vern's eyes, he was only going to have one guy that could use the figure four leg lock which I guess made sense. But here's the deal. Vern, for everything that I could say good about him, because he was a great promoter and he was a friend, but he could be bullheaded. And he was a no, a my way or the highway kind of guy. And uh, I think he could have said to Johnny, you know what, we're going to have a, a battle here. We'll put you into a program with Dr. X. We'll have a figure four leg lock battle. I mean, they could have played this out and worked something around it. Sure. But Vern just said, I don't want you using the power lock. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, Johnny pretty much in a huff told Vern, I, I'm not going not gonna to go for it. We're now into the month of September because this was late August when uh, the doc had debuted. And Johnny just pretty much said, screw you. And he left. And so that was the end of Johnny Powers. And a lot of people, we wondered, you know, what happened? Because like I said, he was here for a coffee break. But he got, of anybody who's ever come in of name value like that, nobody has ever had that shoot to the top as quickly as Powers did. And there was no doubt that Vern liked him and wanted him to, you know, succeed. But that ended it. So now here's the fun stuff that, I only learned this in uh, the year 2000. Powers left and he came back for a December 67 Battle Royal. Now, at in the Battle Royal, sometimes Vern or whatever promoter in promotion, they would bring in a couple of guys from the outside, some names to kind of, you know, make it look that much better. And Johnny had, or had come back for this December Battle Royal in Minneapolis. And then they have the undercard matches. A couple of guys from the Royal, of course, are going to face each other. It was interesting because one of the preliminary matches on the card was Johnny Powers against Dr. X. And uh, Dr. X won with his figure four leg lock. And Johnny was gone. 
Now, here's the part that I learned in 2000. I had the honor. You know, I was I was friends with Dick Beyer, Dr. X, for, boy, 35, 40 years. And uh, we, were, we were good buds. We're at Cauliflower Alley at the reunion in 2000. And Dr. X is there, or Dick Beyer is there. And at Cauliflower, he always wore his destroyer mask. He was always the destroyer there. <clears throat> well, lo and behold, Johnny Powers was there. And that was the only time that I know of that Johnny made cauliflower. Um, I had the unique opportunity to have breakfast the next morning that I saw Johnny in the lounge or in the restaurant there. I had breakfast with Johnny Powers. We chatted. And lo and behold, just by coincidence or whatever, but here comes Dick Meyer without his mask in the early morning. He wasn't at any of the wrestling functions, so he was Dick Beyer. And he come over and he, he sat down. I said, hey, do you, you know Johnny Powers? It was interesting because Johnny Powers was bald, completely shiny bald. And right. uh, a lot of fans didn't realize that during some of his wrestling days, he wore uh, a, a wig, a rug, whatever you want to call him. He, he did. But Johnny was sitting there and, and Dick sat down and... I couldn't resist. I had to talk about the time that their entrances and leaving pretty much coincided. Doc was here in 67 August. Johnny left in September. And Johnny told me, he said, well, you know what happened there, Dick. He said, you remember what happened. <clears throat> and Dick was, at first, I don't think he caught on, but then he goes, well, I know you left right after I came in. Johnny said, well, Vern had come to me and wanted me to uh, not use my figure four anymore. And I uh, said, I'd been winning. That's my signature. That's what I've been doing. And and I I didn't agree with his decision, so I left. And uh, Dick, he says, well, that's weird because, you know, we could have worked a program together. And so really the inside story came out because I hadn't known to that point that Vern and Johnny had had this disagreement, and uh, really we lost a great a great talent in the AWA. Now, all of that aside, Johnny Powers was far bigger than the AWA. He was uh, in charge of his own National Wrestling uh, Federation. He uh, was international, wrestled in Japan, wrestled in Australia was a big name. He was a baby face for a lot of these things as after he left AWA. But he was a, a talent that he was good on the mic. He was good in the ring. He could draw the people. And um, he had a chance to wrestle Bruno San Martino and other uh, champions. And just, you know, the bottom line was this. I saw it the other day, and it's kind of weird when I saw that he had passed. And uh, having seen every single wrestler that ever passed through the AWA, and I saw them all in person from 1960 on. Many of them were before that, but it was still NWA territory. But uh, every time we lose one of these guys, you know, it's almost like I just lost a, a, a personal family member. Sure. And uh, <clears throat> kind of funny story about that. When we lived in our old house, which is what 
well over 30 years ago, we had a neighbor that came over and I had a little area in the basement with pictures of wrestling and everything on the wall, corner of the basement walls, which was what my wrestling room was back in those days. And this neighbor come over and she goes, oh boy, are these pictures of your family? You know, I got all these naked wrestlers on the wall, you know. Well, they had trunks on, but you get my drift. And I said, no, no, they're they're pro wrestlers. But then I thought about it. They were my family. They are my family. And so having seen every major wrestler that had come through the AWA until 1990 when they locked the doors and went out of business, um, anytime I've lost any of these guys, it, it really is. It's a piece of my childhood. It's a piece of my uh uh, a part of my family. So Johnny, you know, he, he wasn't what I would call one of my favorite wrestlers. I mean, he wasn't uh, in my all-time great list, but I, I recognize his contribution. And I know the excitement I had when I saw him wrestling uh, in 67 and, uh, you know, follow him in the magazines and the fan club bulletins after that. So Johnny, rest in peace. And uh, I uh, just lost another family member. So there you go. There. George, I'm, I, I haven't dropped a baseball reference in a couple of episodes, so here I go. Uh, and I'm sure you're going to remember this guy, Bob Hurricane Hazel, who got called up to the Milwaukee Braves. It was in either, what, 57 or 58. I think he hit 403 uh, at the end of the season. And, I mean, that was pretty much it for him. I think he hung around for a couple of seasons after that. But And I don't want to compare Johnny Powers to that, but um, he actually main-evented uh, against Bruno at Forbes Field, and he yes. is barely 21 years old. I don't yes. think anybody in, in the history of the WWF, or even, I would say, even any of the major federations, got a title shot at that age. And then, you know, when, when he wrestled Vern if he, in 67, he would have been 24. I mean, right. the guy was like, I don't know, I, I kind of almost feel that something, he could have been even bigger than he was. Would you agree? I would. And, you know, the thing is, when you talk about the young age, um, it, it was unusual in that era for a wrestler to come right out of the chute, so to speak, and, and start getting main events. I will tell you that Harley Race was 21 years old when he and Larry Hennig, a lot of people don't realize this, but when he and Larry Hennig won the AWA tag team title and Harley had had a couple years under his belt already wrestling. So there were some exceptions to that rule, but Johnny Powers was, yeah, he was in that group. Uh, he, the, the wrestlers, the promoters, and that's why I say I know Vern liked him. And he drew for Vern. And, you know, I, I want to clarify something here. Vern, as bullheaded as he was, and he probably he lost a great talent because of his stubbornness in 67. But here was the final thing that Johnny Powers had said when we were talking about that uh, December Battle Royal when he came back, Johnny said to me, because I asked him, I said, well, you did come back for a match or two at the end of December. He said, Vern contacted me. He said, come on in for this Christmas Battle Royal. It was a couple of days after Christmas. He's come on in for my annual Battle Royal. And he said, uh, you know, I'd like you to go against Dr. X. It's, and he says, I will only tell you this, Vern paid me very well to come in that but it was kind of a one-shot deal. But I do agree with you, Benny. Um, Johnny Powers proved that wherever he did wrestle, you know, he worked for Inoki. 
uh, with Anoki and wrestled him. And I mean, he, he wrestled pretty much a lot of the huge names in this business. And they either were willing to be put over by him or Johnny would put them over, but you always had a great match. And I, I saw many matches that, or I heard of many matches that he had with Johnny Valentine uh, in the early 70s. And I thought that was so much fun when I saw them as opponents because I had seen them team together in the AWA a couple of times when they battled Hennig and Race. And I, I got to tell you, you had four heels at that time in that tag team match because Johnny and Valent or Johnny Valentine and Powers, they were heels here. Okay. Interesting. <clears throat> um, I was curious. Uh, I mean, you can't really talk, and I know it's it's a story that's been told a hundred times. And I was just wondering if you have any insight. You really can't talk about Johnny Powers without mentioning the Cleveland riot. And I was wondering if you have any any thoughts on that. I don't honestly, and you know, I'm and I'm going to be honest with you on this. Um, I know of it. I. I would not be the guy to speak to about it. So. No, it's okay. I, I was just curious. I know I would, it, have done, I would have done some research on it if you'd have told me in advance, but no, I know of it. I remember it. I, I just, um, I don't know the behind the deal scenes deal or anything with it. So I couldn't amazing. I, I don't know. I don't know something good. Grief. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to catch you. I was just curious. No, no, that's the... fine. Hey, now I, got, now I got to look up on the darn thing. <clears throat> okay. You know, he, he seems to be, though, one of these guys that just kind of wanted to do his thing because you don't really hear about, I mean, you hear about the rivalry with Inoki in Japan and his success in the NWF. He won, I think, the, their title, the world title, like four times. You know, and, yeah. of course, he had the shots with Vern in AWA and Bruno in WWF. But, like, I mean, he... I don't hear about him and Harley Race or Dory Funk or any or Briscoe. I don't know why that didn't happen. You know, Johnny, I think in his own way was probably somewhat of a independent rebel, so to speak. Um, I honestly don't believe he would have left the AWA if Vern wouldn't have asked him to not use the power lock, the figure four. Vern Vern was intent on putting Doctor X over, and he just for whatever reason, he missed the boat in in not maybe having something happen where Johnny would, you know, become a baby and they could battle in the leg lock battles. And, and, and the reason I say that, too, is because just a year after that, in August of 68, Billy Red Lions came in to the AWA as a baby face. And, of course, we all know, well, we didn't at the time. But Billy Red Lions was Dick Byers' real-life brother-in-law. And so Billy came in as a babyface, and he beat Dr. X in his debut match on All-Star Wrestling TV with a figure four leg lock. And then they had this battle. And Doc was saying, you know, they brought in this ringer, this guy who, I mean, so Vern, somehow a, a year earlier, he he, he didn't, he didn't think of that, that they could have used, you know, Dr. X could have even said, you're not going to use my figure four. I'm better than you are. They could have done all kinds of things. But Vern actually went to him and said, we're going to still use you. You're, you're drawing money, but I don't want you to use the figure four. And 
promoters were weird in that era too, guys, because sometimes they just couldn't see, you know, the old story, you don't see the forest for the trees. Right. If they had two blonde wrestlers, they didn't want two blonde wrestlers unless they were a tag team. They, they couldn't fathom having a good guy and a bad guy or two heels that weren't together. You, you know, one's got to be a, a dark haired guy. And, and it was weird. They just had weird, weird thinking. And then, you know, a year later, like I said, Lyons comes in, which I'm sure was part of Dick Byers doings because, you know, he brought his brother-in-law in. They had a huge program against each other for the next year and a half uh, in all over the AWA. And, and Johnny just said, you know, I told Vern, I, I'm not going to give up my pet hold. That's what I, I make my money with. That's what I've made my money with. And he says, you know, we parted company. But he said, Vern, when he contacted me three months later for that December Battle Royal, he said, and I don't know what he was paid, but all he said to me was, he says, he took care of me really well. So Vern gave him a good payday, and I think maybe that was probably Vern's way of saying, hey, I'm sorry for things the way, the way they worked out. Sure. And, of course, by that time, too, you know, Johnny was on to other ventures. So sometimes they pass in the night and never come back together. You know, we've done on the show, uh, what you talked at the top of the hour being your your fourth appearance we've had a few other recurring guests and one of our recurring segments we've done uh we've had evan ginsburg and nikita brezhnikov on to do what ifs like to kind of debate and discuss what if scenarios and i wanted to pick your brain on this one there's one we've never covered benny and i've talked about this before uh do you think the territory system as it was would have sustained or could have sustained itself if vince mcmahon hadn't expanded nationally Boy, I know that. That's an interesting question. And, you know, I, I think maybe we've touched uh, on this a million times with various scenarios to it. Um, you know, when I followed wrestling from the very late 50s through about 19, well, I'm just going to go to 84 when Vince McMahon shot the first bullet and pulled Hulk Hogan out of the AWA. That was the, that was the first shot from the cannon. So do I think, you have to remember, guys, that during that 25-year period or whatever it was that I followed wrestling, we had, boy, at any given time, we had 25 to 30 individual territories around the United States that some were bigger, some were smaller, you know, some were more independent-like, but we had, we had 30 territories. And the beauty of the business was that now we can use we can bring Johnny Powers back into this. The beauty of the business was that if a wrestler didn't like working for this promotion, he could pick up his bag and go work for that promotion. There was always a place for him to go. There were there, we had oh my gosh, we had three thousand, give or take wrestlers that made money huge money for the day for the period i mean i don't want it at that point i don't want to compare you know salaries today but they made good money traveling from territory to territory to territory 
And then you had your mainstays, you know, guys that three or four or five guys that were in the territories forever and everything was built around them. But without those territories, and this is where it got, I think it got comical or complicated when Vince started saying, you know what, I'm going to go national and I'm going, but here's the deal. So to answer your question, no. I don't think it I don't think it could have existed long term. What you have to look at is that in 1984 when Hulk Hogan went to the WWF which it was at the time and then other guys were plucked from different territories by Vince McMahon Vern Gagne got picked the most. His guys were taken Jesse Ventura Dr. D. David Schultz, eventually many others. His own announcer, his 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 main announcer, uh, Gene Okerlund. But Vince handpicked from a lot of these big territories. He went down to uh, World Championship. What is it? World Class Championship Wrestling down in Dallas, right. Fritz von Erich. He took the Freebirds. He ended up getting Kerry von Erich because it made more sense. He took Randy Savage. He went down to Bill Watts Mid-South, grabbed the junkyard dog. He grabbed Ted DiBiase, turned him into the million-dollar man. Hacksaw Jim uh, Duggan. Grabbed, grabbed Hawksaw Duggan. And, I mean, you go all these different territories, and Vince was was taking the cream of – he was basically taking each territory's Hulk Hogan, their, their, their main guy, one of their top draws. And then this is where the sad part comes in. The all of these promotions that we talked about, 25, 30 of them. If you looked at the average age of most of these promoters, they were all at least 55, 60, 70 years old. <coughs> Excuse me. And so they didn't see the forest for the trees again. They could not see the train coming down the track that wrestling had was changing. We now had pay-per-view capabilities, which was unheard of. You know, the closest thing that we came to it was in 1976 when Vince McMahon Jr. had the closed circuit event with Antonio Inoki and uh, Muhammad Ali, the big uh, wrestler martial arts match which was a fiasco by the way but yes. it was our first experience we can we can talk about that all night <clears throat> excuse me so uh the the world was changing very quick you know we 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 entered into as at the end of the 70s the very early 80s we now had vcr recorders which were unheard of back just a couple of years earlier you could tape matches you could get matches from all over the fans were becoming smarter in not necessarily smarter but they were smart to things happening promoters all over were having trouble keeping kayfabe because they couldn't bring somebody in and change his name anymore and because people knew who he was and so vince jr you know he just he was a visionary and when he started taking these territories slowly down, it didn't happen right away in 84. It took 85, 86, 87, 88, 89. All of these territories were still, some of them running on life support, but they were still promoting. 
but with lesser talent and sometimes literally no talent at all and trying to make them seem like the second coming of 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 god so vince just he single-handedly did it but at a very slow and methodical way and when he started going into these territories and buying up their tv time paying tv stations you know just using the awa he paid stations not to run Vern's show wwf on he paid arenas not to rent to them rent to the wwf and vince did these things and it became harder and harder for all of these old school promoters to get talent vince started promising you know i'll give you a mega dollars to come and work for me and he paid he paid guys to not show up in other territories promotions they were advertised the you cannot you know the old story program subject to change well you can use that when a guy is legitimately uh injured or a guy uh, uh just for some reason didn't make a card you make shift and you have a different card but you can't start doing it every match where your main event guys aren't coming they're not showing up <coughs> eventually fans aren't going to accept it and so i don't know i i do not see the territorial system having any lifeblood after you know there were still some around in the early 90s but uh the big ones you know the nwa had become a shell of its former greatness the awa was gone pacific northwest territory which was so vibrant to pro wrestling shire out roy shire out in uh san francisco was gone world class was gone florida was on life support you know atlanta all these big territories and uh i don't think so so does that answer your question and again this is my perspective i i'm not saying this is all entirely you know true i just don't see it surviving i, I think well, vince did enough damage where the house couldn't be built rebuilt now, George, just assume that Vince McMahon was not Vince McMahon and he was more like a, say, a Don Owens, and he was very content just to promote the Northeast, the WWF. <laughs> Under that scenario, you know, with everybody staying in their own lane, do you think it could have survived for a while longer? I mean, I know you've discussed that, you know, the, the lifeblood of, of all these territories was TV and you know yeah, the yeah. interviews on tv to promote the, the matches at the arena and that's how they made their money um at some point would technology have overtook that that local tv show well okay let's just use a territory you you mentioned pacific northwest if you want to use that one but i we could sure. use the awa too if if you're not going to be able to if you've got one promoter that's doing pay-per-views and providing national hookups all that anybody in the country can get you see the beauty of pro wrestling in those territory days was when i watched awa and benny were you in uh wwf territory yes okay so you watched wwf in the in the 70s i was watching awa except for the wrestling magazines and some fan club bulletins 
we really had no idea who some of these wrestlers were. We never saw some right. of them. We could only fathom how great it would be. And when all of a sudden um, these guys are exposed all, all over the, the country, you know, the thing is there were promotional wars. I mean, let's never make wrestling uh, uh, all pure because in the 60s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, there were promotional wars where another territory's promoter would come into another territory and try to run opposition to them. There are many stories about that. Uh, Dick the Bruiser went into Detroit and tried to run opposition to Ed Farhat, the Sheik. And when they would do something like this, the the wrestler coming in or the promoter coming in to, to run opposition would come up with mega talent. They'd have monster cards. They would call on their friends. You know, Bruiser called in all his friends, Vern Gagne and Wilbur Snyder and the Crusher and and anybody you could think of to come in and, and work on his cards. For the fans in that time frame, yeah, that was cool. Oh my gosh, all of a sudden we got two promotions working here. But eventually, inevitably, the usually the home promotion won out. The fans' loyalties. And eventually it became too hard for that rival promoter that was causing all the problem to keep the thing going. And so they would kiss and make up and go about their merry ways. And everybody went back home and played in their own backyard. But by, by the, by the middle eighties, you know, Vince McMahon bought the WWF from his daddy in 82. And uh, many people have said Vince senior, there wasn't a, an old school promoter out there that had issues with Vince senior. They were all camaraderie between them. They they exchanged talent back and forth. They um, they worked together. You know, hey Vince, uh, Vern calls Vince. Hey, I'll give you I'll give you so and so. Can you send so and so to me? Oh sure, fine. They do it. And all the promoters worked that way. But when Vince Senior sold the company to Junior, um, Vince Junior was only what thirty three years old or something. So he was a young kid who had been around the business already for, you know, his whole life, he was working for his daddy. And he just saw, he saw something that the others didn't. And here's the other thing. It isn't that Vern didn't think of possibly maybe a pay-per-view type thing, or Ole Anderson down in Atlanta didn't think of it, but Ole was older as well by then, or Eddie Graham or whoever it was. They didn't know how to do it. And that's that's where the genius of Vince McMahon Jr. comes in. I'm not a fan of Vince Jr., but I certainly do not, uh, I don't like some of the tactics and the ethics that he didn't adhere to. But the bottom line was the man was a promoting genius and he did what he did. And we see where he is. He's a billionaire. I mean, how, how do you how do you fault that? Um, we don't have to agree that he did it the right way. Some of it was unscrupulous, and he turned he he made a lot of enemies and he hurt a lot of people. But um, you know, Vince, a lot of people don't know this, or some may do, but Vince came into the AWA and had a, a lunch with Vern Gagne and Greg Gagne. 
83, sometime in 1983. And he came in and he told Vern, he says, I want to buy the AWA. And Vern going, yeah, sure, no, ain't going to happen. You know, Vern was riding the crest in 1981, 82, and 83, with 82 in the middle, being his most successful years in the AWA for, for financial side of it. Vern was running, you know, roughshod with the greatest promotion. Anybody who was anybody in this business wanted to go to the AWA and work. Vern didn't see any reason that I should sell out to this young kid coming to me, Vince Jr. And Vince and Vern told him, he says, no, I'm not selling the AWA. Greg told me later, and this is the gospel, Greg is, and he's told this to me more than once. Greg told me later, he said, Vince got up from the table after lunch. They shook hands. And he said, as he was walking away, Vince was walking away. He turned around and he said to Vernon Gregg, I don't negotiate. A couple months later, guess what? Hogan's being drawn away. David Schultz was being drawn away. Dr. D. Mean Gene. Mean Gene, Jesse, so on. And it started happening. Now, Vern didn't see that bullet coming. Whether it just was he didn't choose to see it or he ignored it, it doesn't matter. But Vince did say to him, I would buy the AWA. Vern at that point, and Vern was, what, in 1983, he would have been 58 years old? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. He was born in 26, so he'd have been. 57, yeah. Uh, 57, 58. Um, Vern still had a lot of as the old term goes, piss and vinegar in him yet. <clears throat> and his AWA was successful. So th there's how it goes down. Um, Vince, he pretty much, he had the vision, the others didn't. Then they started, well, we're going to fix this young whippersnapper, and they would try to work together. You know, Vern worked with Jerry, the Jerry Jarrett, the Lawler area down in Memphis, Tried to co-promote with Fritz von Erich, his buddy Fritz. Fritz and Vern were good friends for decades. Tried to co-promote cards and share each other's talents. Well, you know, the problem with that was that they all wanted to be in charge. Vern wanted to be the guy putting the card together and putting his guys over. And Fritz wanted his guys on top and wanted his put over. And Jarrett wanted his guys over. And they were all fighting. And I don't care what happens in our world, there isn't a company out there, whatever the business is, you can't have everybody in charge. You can't. You got to have, uh, you got to have one chief. And they imploded themselves there. And Vince Jr., I don't know if you ever saw that spectacular legacy of the AWA or whatever it's called that Vern, that uh, Vince put out. Um, there's a lot of inaccuracies in the historical part of it. That's another story for another time. But Vince said in that, that video, he said, I just sat back. I didn't do anything wrong. I just sat back and watched these promoters implode because they couldn't get along. When it, when it counted. And what they were trying to do is work against Vince 
and they ended up working against themselves because they couldn't couldn't really work together. So the territorial system um, in eighty in the early eighties there there was nothing wrong with it, but with pay per view and the capabilities and with cape you know everybody having cable television and you know by the mid eighties, I mean now you can watch wrestling on cable TV and in 1984 85 i'm not lying to you here in the awa territory i had over seven tele uh, wrestling programs that i could watch in a week different territories aside from the awa and at the time i thought well this is great but the reality was is it wasn't great behind the scenes because that's what was ruining wrestling you know, the promoter, Vern Gagne, could no longer come on TV. And I'm just using, just putting names in here, okay? But Vern could no longer come on TV and say, you know, fans, uh, Pepper Gomez is injured and he's not going to be able to wrestle when the fans just saw him in San Francisco on, on the program out there. And they were seeing it right here in the in the AWA land. Kayfabe was lost. And so... The territorial system, yeah, it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna survive, at least the way we knew it. And uh, from an old school fan standpoint, nobody was sadder than I was because I miss when wrestling was real, as real as you wanted it to be. Yeah, it was we was predetermined. Yeah, we knew that, or some of us did. Yeah, we knew when they were gonna do a turn or they were gonna start a program together, but. That's what the fun of it was. And, and when we got to see somebody come into the territory that we'd never seen and, or, you know, we'd heard about this guy in, in all the after magazines or for me, many magazines before the apters and to see them come in and see him live, but kayfabe was gone. And I missed that. And then before you know it, all these territories are trying to survive and they're using talent that they're putting, trying to put guys over that really you know, we talked about 21-year-olds before. You can't bring a 21-year-old kid in for the most part and put him into the main event as the next best thing because fans were wise to it. They were green. They couldn't wrestle. They couldn't bump. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't work. And so, and we couldn't get talent anymore. And uh, so, I don't know. I hope I answered your question. I don't think the territorial system could have existed and I don't think it can ever come back. I, I agree with you. George, another Vince question. So, you know, a lot of people say oh, he's, he's made wrestling better. And I, I guess to me it depends on, like, what is your definition of better? And people say, well, he took it out of the bingo halls and he put it into the main arenas. Well, I don't agree with that because, you know, th there are huge venues that hosted wrestling events far before uh, Vince got involved in wrestling. You know, Pat O'Connor and Buddy Rogers and Comiskey Park, and there's so many like that. But, you know, the, the thing with, to me at least, in my opinion, is, is it was it really better? Because, you know, again, in, in, in New York in the mid-70s, uh, they wrestled monthly at the Nassau Coliseum, the, uh, the Garden, and then the Westchester Arena. And you could, I mean, all three were the, within driving distance. So as a fan with a driver's license, I could go to three shows a month. You know, now now as a fan in Tampa here, uh, they might come to Emily Arena twice a year. So who did he really make it better for other than himself and his own pocketbook? 
Well, you know, you bring up just a fantastic point. Um, it's always tough when you're you're trying to compare this era versus that era. However, you just touched on the fact that you could go to three or four different shows within driving distance. And you mentioned you're in you're in Tampa. You live there now. Yes. So, so here, back in the in the seventies and the eighties, if if I was a fan, and I did this a few times, I in my back in my traveling days, I used to go to territories. I had a driver's license. I could get an airplane ticket. I was moving, baby, uh, you know, to see these cards. A, a guy could go to Florida, and he could go. Now I don't remember the exact nights of the week. I know Tampa used to be Tuesday night, Tampa and I think Tuesday, Miami. Yeah. In Miami might have been Monday, but they could go to wrestling Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in Florida. Because you had Miami, you had Tampa, you had Miami Beach, you had Palm Beach, uh, or West Palm Beach, I think it was. You had Tallahassee, you had uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale. I mean, that was that was a heaven. Yeah, you'd have to do some driving to hit them all, you know, within the time. As a fan, you could do it. And here's the deal. Now you want to talk about venues, and you know you used Nassau Coliseum up in the in the Northeast. Bruno San Martino, legend has it that once a month in the Garden, when he was champion, the Madison Square Garden, whoever his heel opponent was of the of the month, that they had built up as the the biggest thing ever, and you know, can Bruno stop him? Bruno sold that place out. True story? What, as far as Bruno selling out? Selling out the garden. Well, I mean, they credit him with 187 sellouts, but some, I've heard that that may be in question. Well, the bottom line was is that he was drawing really well in the card and oh, people absolutely. surrounded him. Yes. Like, absolutely. In the AWA... I'll use, okay, let me just use Minneapolis-St. Paul, the Twin Cities. We had, for the, for the 60s, 70s, and into the early 80s, we had two auditoriums. The St. Paul Auditorium, which later became the Civic Center. It was a newer, bigger building. And we had the Minneapolis Auditorium, which also had a convention center that was there. We would hold wrestling there. And back in the 60s, the Twin Cities would run two cards a week, usually Tuesdays and Saturdays, evenings. What Minneapolis-St. Paul, they'd switch off. Now, in its heyday, the, the St. Paul Auditorium, capacity for attendance for wrestling, and this would be with having some adding some standing room only, but capacity was 10,000 wrestling fans. On a weekly, on a in the '60s, on a weekly basis, with the cards they were running and the angles and, and feuds and stuff they had going on, the St. Paul Auditorium would run, on average, anywhere from about 3,500 to about 75 or 8,000. And then once or twice a year, when they have the blow-off match, baby, it's 10,000. They sold the joint out. Minneapolis would do the same thing. You could have 3,500 fans up to, say, 75, 8,500 on a regular weekly basis. Now, you do that 50 52 weeks a year, you're drawing a lot of fans on a weekly basis. 
when when Vern was in the Civic Center, the St. Paul Civic Center, which he went to exclusively in about 19, oh, it was about 1980 when he they quit running the cities together and they were then they were down to monthly cards usually. Sometimes they'd have every two weeks. But they were running monthly cards. The Civic Center as a sellout was about 21,000 fans. The place is filled. You're doing that on a monthly basis, 12 months out of the year. I'd say that's pretty cool. So wrestling all over the country, every territory, the bigger territories, you know, the San Francisco, Atlanta, Florida, Texas. Oh my God, Texas. Texas had five, what, four or five different territories within the state. Absolutely. They had Dallas, Fort Worth, then they had Houston running. They had San Antonio. They had Amarillo, which Amarillo, was part of Lubbock yeah. and Abilene. Um, I'm probably forgetting something. But they, uh, they expanded a little bit too. It wasn't, you know. <clears throat> It wasn't unheard of for some of the Texas talent to be seen on like the borders and, you know, South Oklahoma and Arizona and places like that. Yeah. And so wrestling was huge in the territorial system. And there was enough talent to go around that every promoter could have the biggest stars still kayfabe. We never heard in the Twin Cities about any other promotion. You know, when we watched television here on it, All-Star Wrestling, if the promoter told us that so-and-so had had left town or or lost a lose-or-leave town match and he's never, or he's suspended, he's never going to wrestle again. Well, that was great. You know, they're suspended. We had no idea. Yeah, the poor guy's suspended or, or the heel. Good luck. Good riddance. He's gone. He's suspended. We didn't know that he could pack up and go somewhere else and he's main eventing t- tomorrow night. Wrestling was, and here's the other thing, in 19, I want to say it was 71, an issue of Wrestling Monthly Magazine. I should have, pull, I should have pulled it out. Um, they did, they did a, a world a survey on attendance for Major League Baseball, football, horse racing, uh, automobile racing. And you know, all of these things draw huge crowds. Well, whether or not it was some kayfabe in there, I don't know. But based on the statistics of all the territories and all the matches and all the attendance from all these huge arenas, pro wrestling outdrew these other, some of these other sports. And a lot of people won't give it credit for that. <laughs> you know, I mean, wrestling drew so well. Now, when Vince started his pay-per-views, well, you know, then then we went, the system changed rather quickly where now we were no longer having in. You know how often we get WWE here in the Twin Cities now? Maybe once a year, we're lucky if it's two. So WWE's coming to town, kids. Get your tickets. Okay. Yeah, they'll probably sell out. The fan base is different. Um. I don't, I don't follow the product today, but the fans, the fans are attending matches for different reasons today than what they did back then. Um, you go to a generic card here in 
Minneapolis when the WWE comes in. Yeah, they have a bunch of the TV wrestlers that are there. And <clears throat> they'll wrestle in some matches, but they're not going to see the big matches, the the big pay-per-view. You know, right now, uh, I'm guessing right now, WWE, I suppose they're preparing for their Royal Rumble or something. Isn't that around this time of the year? Yeah, that's in a few weeks. Yeah, I thought it was around the end of January, if I remembered right. So just just in time for uh, for Vince uh, to come back and and be in charge of the company for their next pay per view, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, which, by the way, let me ask you guys a question. Um, I had seen some rumors that Vince is coming back, and that somehow the story's out now that that he wants to sell the company. Is, are there some rumors to that effect? Yeah, the uh, actually we were talking before we got you on the phone. Um, the story we're recording this on a Tuesday, uh, the tenth. The mm-hmm. story broke about an hour before. That would be what about six o'clock, six and change Eastern time. Uh, the board just unanimously elected Vince executive chairman again, and Stephanie McMahon resigned. Uh, from her position because she had taken over when he, Vince left the company the first time. But yeah, the, the story is that that's why Vince came back was no one is selling this company or doing anything with these future negotiations except me. And a lot of people forgot that, or I shouldn't say forgot, but didn't think about, um, he may not have been with the company over the last year, but he still owned enough stock to control 80% of all executive voting. So they weren't going to do anything without him. And yes, the story is now there, uh, NBC, Fox, Disney, uh, the Saudi sports authority, and, um, another company that's escaped me at the moment that owns, uh, like mixed martial arts promotions and all have all been tied to, uh, involvement with selling the company. But yeah, this, well, that's you know, the story. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, you know, that that's interesting. Um, you know, if, if there's the possibility that they're thinking of selling the company, you know, maybe Vince, I mean, what is he? He's in his mid seventies now. 77. Mm-hmm. 77. Okay. He's in his upper seventies and, uh, Lord knows he's a billionaire. And, you know, maybe maybe he's starting to say, you know what, Hunter's kind of out of the picture, isn't he? What's that? Isn't Hunter Triple H? Isn't he out of the picture, so to speak? With, I mean, he's not. He he doesn't have the executive authority because the what they call the cl- the the Class B stock, which is where all the voting power is, uh, okay. is only allowed to be owned by the McMahon family and their direct descendants. Um, but no, he's, he's currently the head of creative and VP of talent relations. So, I mean, he's still very much involved in the company. He just has, he, he won't ever be able to have the executive authority to sell or be part of that, uh, himself. Well, here, here's the way I would look at it. I know you mentioned a couple of companies there that are supposedly looking or whatever. Um, I have no doubt that some one or some of them could maybe be serious and it could could work out i don't know i don't see a company like disney though if disney were to buy wwe uh the disney that i know i don't that doesn't fit 
Th- well, going to be it's, it's going to have to become. We've teased that Vince has a cartoon uh, promotion, but right. it's definitely going to have to be cartoon because well, if, Disney if I may, is too family friendly. Yeah, no, I agree. I think actually, if I may, with Disney, uh, as we wrap up here, final thought on that. Um, if I may, with Disney, I think because Bob Iger is now the the CEO of Disney again, yeah, and. Yeah. He negotiated during his first tenure as CEO of Disney. He negotiated the purchase of Marvel Comics, uh, the, right. the the final merge with Pixar, and the purchase of Lucasfilm uh, from uh, George uh, George Lucas. They spent to give you an idea. The, the stories are they're going to get anywhere between four to six billion dollars is about the is about what they expect WWE to sell for. So. You know, he sold. They purchased Star Wars for a little over four billion. And la- uh, last number I saw, I think it was twenty twenty one. Disney sold just over two hundred billion dollars in Star Wars merchandise, with uh, Baby Yoda and all that stuff being huge around Christmas. So, you know, you have to assume if you're going to spend four billion for for Star Wars and make. $200 billion in just merchandise. You're going to spend, you know, a couple billion dollars for Marvel and the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the largest f- film franchise in movie history. Disney is not going to spend the same amount of money they spent on Star Wars and Marvel to buy the WWE, which just barely posted a billion dollar profit a year, or a billion dollar uh in, in, in revenue a year ago, it's, I don't see Disney spending that kind of money for such a small return on investment when they could go buy another company for the same amount and make a hundred billion dollars a year instead of $1 billion. Yeah. Although I could, what do you think, Benny? You think, uh, next time you go to Disney world, uh, you could go get your picture taken with, uh, uh, Mickey buzz Lightyear and then somebody dressed as stone cold. <laughs> that that well, would you know, be great. The you the know, the, un, the the Undertaker's uh tombstone ride now now at Frontierland. The the thing about wrestling, pro wrestling, is it, it has always been a cyclical sport. It is something that fans come into and fans leave. You know, fans are fans for a short period of time. Some of them are diehard forever, nutballs like me, who, you know. I live and breathe it every day, except not the modern stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I just, I don't see wrestling um, ever being what it was. It can never be the way it was. It just can't. And it's going to continue to be. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm sad that there's really nobody in, nobody from the, the wrestling business anymore if vince leaves that's it there's no one else left that has actually been in the wrestling business you know it is now being taken over by people that don't have a clue so i don't know yeah um you you know we mentioned do we how much time do we have are we running for the next two hours or what are we doing here (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean if you you want a a final thought go for it we're we're not on any kind of restricted schedule well, okay, we, we were talking about attendance and, and pay-per-views versus, you know, the old auditoriums and how often they ran and that sort of thing. You know, the thing I find interesting is that people, so often they say, oh, boy, look at those ticket prices, you know, 
and they'll be looking at a, a wrestling card poster program from 1967. You know, wow, $3 for a ringside seat. Wow. You know, that I'd love to see that. You know, that's cheap. They never put into perspective that in 1967, that $3 ticket was the equivalent to what a $50 or $60 ticket is, maybe more with inflation, whatever it is today. And they never take into consideration that in 1967, the average annual household income, we're just talking average household income was somewhere between 10 and 12, 13,000 a year. So that poor guy trying to take his family to the matches and having to buy three or four $3 tickets and then picking up some popcorn and a hot dog and a program and a, a, a photo of uh, a Joe LaDuke on the table, you know, he's going to spend $50, $60, and people go, well, wow, that's cheap. But no, now it's going to cost him in today's world, it's going to cost him three, $400. But now they're making, how many people make $10,000 a year today? I mean, I know there are some, but how many can, can say they do? People today, everybody's in six figures and above and beyond, and above. It's unheard of today for almost anybody to be in the 30, 40,000 range in today's society. So it's all got to be put into perspective. And wrestling was a draw that drew all over the country. That you, the beauty, here's a dream that I had shattered. This is why I miss the territories the most. In the 60s and the 70s, I used to dream about the day when I retired. And I never saw the end of the territories happening back then. I mean, there was no pay-per-view. There was no VCRs. There was no cable. I used to dream that when I retired, I was going to get in my car and I was going to spend the next 365 days driving across the United States, seeing a wrestling card in a different spot every single night of the week. And I could have done it. It was possible. And when Vince shattered the territories, guess what? I can't do that. So right. that's why I'm angry. I can understand that. That's, you know, it's funny to think. I mean, maybe now with the independent scenes, you know, you drive to a, a high school or an auditorium or a, a sports authority center or a Salvation Army building. You know, there's there's a, there's a good indie promotion in every state, but certainly not an old school territory feel. You know, there there are good indies. And let's not take it away from them. And these guys on the indies, these wrestlers, they work their little hearts out. But let's also be fair and say the majority of them are not anywhere near the talent that we had when we were 30 territories. They, they are guys that are trying to, to make a quick buck. They got a full-time job to support their families. And they go to wrestle on an indie, and if they get paid 20 bucks, they're happy. Benny, you pointed out earlier, or one of you did, that Vince was going to take it out of the, the bingo halls when he did his national expansion. Well, wrestling had been out of the bingo halls and the VFWs for many decades. Right. Before Vince ever Jr. ever came along and, and uh, you know said, I'm taking him out of the bingo halls. Yeah, back in the 40s. In the 30s, 
yeah, they'd have wrestling, you know, in the small uh, local tavern and the, the little gymnasium. <coughs> but never was it not a big draw in the big cities. And when you had the AWA who had, what, 10, 12, 15 states, or about 10, 11, 12 states that they promoted in by the time they were as huge as they were. And you had all these individual shows that could be run in the smaller towns, the spot shows. The wrestlers in the 70s in the AWA, they, now we're talking salaries in that era. There were guys that were making two hundred and three hundred thousand dollars a year in nineteen eighty, and that you know what that's going to be today. That's going to be a million plus, whatever, a couple oh, million. Yes. I don't know. So see, we 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 had a good thing, and like I said, if you don't work for Vince McMahon, I mean, I know there's AEW and I don't know is Ring of Honor still around and some of these, yes. mm-hmm. but they're not. They're not on the caliber of WWE. They are working hard to make a product and draw fans. And yes, some of them had some, have some great talent. But the bottom line is, is that if you don't work for those, let's just say three companies, and especially with Vince, you're likely not going to make any money in the wrestling business. And there's nowhere to go but out. Whereas in the territory days, like we said, if you didn't like wrestling here, you could pack your, your duffel bag. You could call a promoter in the next uh, territory. You could get booked and you could be there for the next year or two and main event and make good money in that yeah. era. And the money was good. So to, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's sad that wrestling, and here's the part that's toughest for me. If I talk to anybody that's age 55 and younger, they have no idea anymore what I'm talking about. They don't understand because if they're 55 right now, well, you go back, God, it's going to be 30, is it 40 years? 38 years since Vince started his his uh, pay-per-view. Yeah, in 84. 84. So we're coming up on 39 years this year. You're 55-year-old was, you know, 39 years ago, he was a a punk-nosed teenager, runny-nosed kid. He doesn't remember. If if he he probably didn't go to wrestling, he doesn't remember anything until Hulk Hogan was, you know, giving you his spiel about eating vitamins and the whole thing. So my, my era, guys, honest to God, my era is now on life support as well because there's very few of us left that actually remember how great it was. And if you weren't there, you guys know who Wade Keller is? Of the wrestling torch? Wade Keller or? Wade Keller of the wrestling torch. Yes. Okay. Wade Keller, he's a buddy of mine. I've known the guy since 1980. I love Wade. Wade's very first live wrestling card was Vern Gagne's May 10th, 1981 retirement match. That's when Wade became a fan. And he was a runny nose, no offense meant, but he was a runny nose, what, 17-year-old or 16-year-old or something back then. And today, he doesn't remember any of the stuff I talk about. 
And he says, well, it was boring. It was slow. It was this. It was that. Wade, I tell him, and I'll tell this to anybody, you cannot compare it if you didn't live it. I've seen all the eras. I've seen right up to today. And I choose to stick back in the old time machine. And it's, I don't think it's better today. I try. Oh, God, guys, I try. Monday nights, maybe once every five, six weeks, I'll turn it on at 7 o'clock here when Raw comes on. And I swear to you, I get to about the 8 or 10-minute mark after 7. I'm looking for the remote. I don't know what the hell they're yapping about in the ring. There's all these music run-ins. How, fa how fake is a guy talking on the microphone and all of a sudden somebody's music starts and he stops and he looks and here comes the, the, okay. In my era, you never saw, you never had music for starters. You never had some guy come giving you a notice that he's coming out. He come out from under the <laughs> ring or in the dark from the shadows and he clapped right. some guy with a chair. It was, oh my God, where'd he come from? Well, today, the guy coming out to start trouble can't start trouble till we hear his entrance music. The fans well, always, are, the fans I, are pro programmed. <laughs> I always love when they, uh, and I've seen it, uh, I don't know, dozens of times when they have someone that's been fired or suspended or, you know, is out for whatever re legal reason. And when they yeah. make their surprise return or they show up to be just because yeah. they can, they have entrance music like, you know, th this person is, is, has been fired, but their, their sound guy cues their entrance music before they come running down to the exactly. ring. Like, exactly. And you know, the thing about, here's a funny story, 1968 in July, the Vashon brothers, Mad Dog and Butcher. This was going to be the first time that Butcher was coming to town to team with Mad Dog. I'd never, I'd heard about Butcher. I'd seen Mad Dog. My God, there's somebody bigger than the dog. It's his brother. And they're going to go there. They put him in a match on their debut as a tag team here in July of 68 against the Crusher and the Bruiser. Wow. Oh my God. I am what? 68. I'm 17 years old, 16 years old. I, I was, I was jumping up and down. I got, I went to the, to the drugstore and I got a piece of white poster board and I took out magic markers and I made a great big poster, mad dog and butcher versus crusher and bruiser battle of the, of the bullies. And I brought it with me to the auditorium for the match. And when I got to the door, the usher said, what's that? I had it all rolled up you know, in a tube. He says, what's that? I says, I made a poster. <coughs> oh, you can't, you can't show a poster. You know, what is it? You can't take a poster and you're going to block somebody's view. He took my poster. Well, here we are today. You turn on raw and you can't see a fan because they got 25 by 29 uh, signs in front of them for this wrestler and that wrestler and this, this, uh, uh, you know, catchphrase and i just laugh at it because they're only there to hold up their poster they're not there to see that and they want to be noticed on tv yeah, the fans today of fame, yeah. they are programmed they are programmed and all the fireworks oh my god and how long is the entrance i'm really going on a roll here and and i'm just saying this is the way it was how long is the entrance 
for one of the guys to come to the ring. He's got to shake hands with everybody. He's got to have his fireworks. He's got to have his music playing. He's got to be strutting and dancing and jigging. Takes him five, ten minutes before he gets out there and gets in the ring after he's jigging. Yeah. And then the match is boom, boom, boom. They're done. Yeah, yeah that's you know, more than a match. I, I think the uh, in recent memory, the best example of that, when Jeff Hardy premiered on AEW before his most recent uh, run-ins, Matt Matt Hardy was in the ring getting beat up and they play the music and the crowd knows it's Jeff and it's like this huge eruption yeah and as he comes out onto the ramp and starts dance doing his his hand wave dance and like it takes him like 20 or 30 seconds to get to the ring and it's like wait a minute you're out here to stop your brother from getting beaten to death like who dances and high fives fans on their way to go save their brother like it's just the whole thing looks so stupid well, and the other thing, guys, is that we know kayfabe is gone because Vince admitted that it was entertainment and that it was prearranged, which some of us knew that already, and that's fine. But you, you can't, today, there's no secret. If something's going to happen in wrestling within a nanosecond, it's on 17 websites and and on the internet, you know, all over the internet. And in my day, I mean, I, I I'm a Neanderthal, guys. Good grief. We had to wait. We had to wait. You know, when you got the wrestling magazine on the newsstand, the magazine was three months behind. And it's just totally different. It's, you had to live it to appreciate it. And I like that I can compare it. And and, and with that said, anybody that's listening to your show, because I think you guys are awesome and you do a great show and you cover this, this sport in such a great way. Anybody that is a modern day fan and you watch it religiously and you love it and you live it, I applaud you and I support you because you've got your time. This is your time. I had mine. And that's awesome. If this brings you entertainment and, and you you can take life off your shoulders from the daily stress and turmoil, great. That's what it did for me in my era. And so you know, I, I do not, I would never laugh at anybody that watches today's show or, you know, you got to be kidding me. No, I don't. I think we all have our time. And that's just the way it is. Hey, Benny, you mentioned baseball. I'm a baseball purist. I don't like a lot of the things that are going on in baseball today. I remember in the days when it was a lot simpler and a lot easier to watch. And we didn't have seven, you know, eight or 10 or 12 teams in a playoff series. And you had two leagues that, you know, went 162 games and battled it out for the World Series. Right. We didn't have 18 playoff games. And anybody today can be in the playoff. Guy with A team with a losing record can be in the playoff because of the yes. division they're in. So, I mean, it's changed. And today, baseball is huge. I go on baseball trips. I've been to all 30 parks. I'm on doubles, triples on some of them. I got a trip planned this summer where I'm going to hit five more. So I love it, but it's not the way it used to be. It's just not. Certainly. Oh, we do. I think that's great. And that is, a, you know, the, the, I appreciate the compliment. I appreciate your time on the show. And I think that's you a great awesome. final, uh, final thought. What do you think, Benny? So <laughs> now it's four hours we've spoken to George, and th there's still so much more to go. Right. Well, 
every every show is different. We can cover a lot of things, and I like talking about some of the inside stuff. Now I got to do my homework on the on the Cleveland riot. So <laughs> well, I, I'll make sure to hold you to that next appearance. I, again, I I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just no, was curious hey, if you look, had any insight to trust it. Trust me, I don't know everything. And if you don't believe me, just ask my wife. <laughs> she she'll tell you I know nothing. <laughs> uh, but she knows uh, everything. Uh, I'll have, to I'll have to edit that line out, though. My wife will give too much of a kick out of it. No, you go ahead and it's the truth. <laughs> hey, look, hey, I don't know when this is going to air, but in two days, I'm going to be celebrating my 49th wedding anniversary. Wow. And, That's awesome. And, and, and I'll tell you, I am married to a princess. I would, as Roy Clark sang in his song, if I had it to do over again, I'd do it with you. My my wife, I I love her to pieces, and I love her more today than I did when we got married. If that's wow, possible, that's that's great to hear. And so we have been through a lot of hell and high water, as any married couple can be. And uh, we had a tough 2020 with her going through some very bad cancer, and so we're blessed that we are looking at fit 49 here. And uh, so there you go. She she married me and she knew I was a wrestling fan. Oh, all right. And I've lived <laughs> wrestling every single day, and it's part of me. She knows that. She's definitely getting sainted, right? Well, yeah, she is. You... She is. The, the the my girls, my daughters call her. Uh, her name's Lorraine, but they call her Saint Lorraine. Yeah. And she is. She is. Well, well, there there you have it. So uh, this will go up tonight. This week you'll have the uh, 49th anniversary. George, thank you so much. Um, obviously, like like Benny said at the top of the hour, uh, you know your your book is a must read for for thank any you. real wrestling fan. And I mean, not just not just wrestling fans in general, but the the history of it all. Uh, you know, in Minnesota, it's called Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. Uh, it's available any really anywhere books are sold. I know um, when you first came on, when we first got a chance to talk to you a couple years ago, I bought mine on Amazon. I'm sure it's still on there. Uh, just phenomenal stuff. Uh, great history of what is really, uh, really, honestly, I mean, I don't, I don't think Minnesota <laughs> gets the recognition it should as far as history goes. But that goes to what we talked about with the WWE wanting to make everything about New York and, and the areas that they owned. And then obviously, you know, Texas and Florida drawing in a lot of talent, but it's great stuff. Uh, George, uh, this is the fourth time you've been here. We'll definitely have to have you back. We always love talking to you. Like Benny said, this is, you know, over f four hours now over, over a couple years and we still have so much more to cover. Uh, Benny, any final thoughts before we let everybody, uh, let everybody go tonight? No, I just, you know, that's what I love about this is that, no matter what, there's there's always more to talk about. There's wrestling history is so deep uh, and and so wide. You could never cover it all. Even George, like uh, George, I don't even know what the Cleveland riots are, and I'm gonna have to look it up myself. But like, you know, every, every time you talk about something, there's another rabbit hole of wrestling history that you can you can crawl, you know, go down. Well, and and the history of of kayfabe wrestling. I mean it. And I, I can pretty much talk about any territory just about because I used to travel to all of them and I have programs from all of them. And um, what I like about this, guys, is, and Benny, I shared this with you, I like that we just kind of talk. I feel like we've been sitting here and if we had a beer in front of us and or a cup of coffee, I mean, 
this is what I enjoy doing, just sharing ideas, sharing stories. And uh, I'm glad that I, now that I know I'm on four times, I didn't realize that. So I thought I was on just once. I don't keep track, but <laughs> I, I love you guys for, Who's counting? for reaching, right. reaching out. Thank you. Well, for George Shire, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spashano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring.